This is a Federal News Network podcast. Congress bought more time to fill in what members call a framework for 2022 appropriations. That put the government into another three weeks of continuing resolution. So just what are the prospects for an actual budget? Here's Bloomberg Government Congress reporter Jack Fitzpatrick. Jack, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. And Congress is not in session this week, so is anything going on? Because now they're, they'll be back to two weeks before the end of another continuing resolution. Yeah, there will be a lot of work going on for a recess week. It's just going to be behind the scenes. A little before they left, they agreed on a basic framework of how to approach an omnibus government funding bill. Basically, they agreed on the defense and non-defense number and then sent each of the 12 heads of the subcommittees their number that they have to work within. So at this point, the uh, they call them the cardinals because they're essentially one step below the pope on appropriations. Uh, all the subcommittee leaders are writing their bills now that they have a final number to say, here's how much money you have to spend. I would look for you know, the Democratic priorities seem to be significant increases in public health funds, probably a big increase for HHS, uh, it also climate and environment. And then Republicans got a, a solid defense increase. They haven't released all the, the specific numbers yet, but uh, Richard Shelby, the top Republican in the Senate on appropriations, said this is actually going to be a bigger defense increase than what was approved in the defense authorization bill late last year. That was a 5% increase. So we're going to see something at least slightly north of a 5% defense increase. And they'll try to hatch out all the details by March 11th, which is the new deadline now. And is it kosher to appropriate more than was authorized in the NDAA? Yeah, they can do that. Uh, that's, you know, that's a limitation of authorizers as they can set the framework. But appropriators sometimes authorize within their appropriations bills, uh, sometimes go beyond. Technically, you are not supposed to do that, but it, it happens. And uh, we'll, we'll see exactly how they work out the details and what they spend the extra money on. I would note, Talking to Republicans, I brought this up with Lindsey Graham, for example, asking, is the Russia-Ukraine situation changing the debate on defense spending because uh, of increased needs? And and his answer and the, the Republican line essentially seems to be, yeah, it, it, if we're looking at Russia and Ukraine, the floor for these negotiations was the amount of the increase in the authorization bill. Uh, and evidently, they got at least a little bit more. It may only be a few billion more. We'll see exactly what the number comes out to be. But they wanted a little more than that. Yeah. So that Russian threat situation and also what's going on with China pretty much day in, day out, then in effect gives the Democrats the fig leaf they need to sell it to their constituents instead of holding the line on defense budget. They're at each other's throats. So civilian spending is held in check by the Republicans, the defense by the Democrats. They give each other what they want. So now the Democrats at least have a reason that they could go for this. It's not the easiest thing for the Democrats to sell their members on. You know, remember one of the early stop gaps they needed uh, earlier in this fiscal year, there was some pushback by the most progressive members who objected to the extra money that was in there for Israel's Iron Dome defense money. Uh, but really, the, the center of the Democratic Party has seemed to find it acceptable not only to provide that kind of thing, but provide an overall defense increase. 
if they get their non-defense increases, which Republicans have agreed to. So I, I would expect there to be some progressive pushback, maybe some heartburn over it. But the calls that you heard earlier in the, in the year from progressives to cut the military budget and that kind of thing have seemed to just fall off the table lately. We're speaking with Jack Fitzpatrick, Congress reporter for Bloomberg Government. And then there's actually a gambit to eliminate the idea of a budget ceiling which would seem to say, okay, let's just roll the presses. Yeah, the debt limit uh, the past few months has become less and less popular with Democrats. Looking back to the standoff that went on for a few months last year, uh, I think one of the points of frustrations for Democrats was that Republicans said, to Democrats, you do this on your own. They wanted them to do it through the reconciliation process and increase the debt ceiling without any Republican votes. That started getting not only progressives, but really people aligned with leadership in the Democratic Party complaining, you know, why, are, why are we even doing this? So the latest development is a bill to abolish the debt ceiling. And interestingly enough, on the House side, that's introduced by the budget chairman, John Yarmuth, as well as Brendan Boyle. On the Senate side, it's introduced by the majority whip, uh, Dick Durbin, uh, and they had a hearing on this topic, and uh, the House Majority Leader, Steny Hoyer, came in and spoke approvingly of it. So this is really kind of an idea that has worked its way into Democratic leadership. I don't think a bill to abolish the debt limit would actually get the 60 votes necessary at this point. It got a lot of Republican pushback. But remember that, for one, they can raise the debt limit as high as they want in a partisan way through the reconciliation process. And we heard during that standoff uh, the chairman, John Yarmouth, say, why don't we raise it to a gazillion and effectively eliminate it? There are other weird end arounds. They actually raised the the mint the coin thing, uh, mint a trillion dollar coin and transfer that. So it technically doesn't count against the debt limit. Uh, I It makes me wonder if as we get toward the next debt limit standoff, which would be late this year, early next year, do they try some sort of end around to effectively eliminate it if they can't formally abolish it with 60 votes in the Senate? I like that idea of a trillion dollar coin. I guess they could make it a trillion dollar crypto coin and it would be a, I, I like to think it'd be a really big physical coin in a bank <laughs> vault but maybe it's crypto yeah it would be the door to the bank vault probably or something like that or <laughs> yeah. non-fungible whatever it has to be all right and uh, so the senate then when it does return of course it looks like the if you watch the tea leaves that there is a nominee in the mind of the president for supreme court and that's going to take up a lot of Senate time with the roundabout and the courtesies. And therefore, they would probably want that omnibus to just be a quick vote. Yeah, uh, they are pretty determined to get government funding done by that March 11th deadline and not have to rely on another stopgap and buy more time. We've heard from Democratic leadership they're they're eyeing a pretty fast time frame for the Supreme Court. Uh, confirmation process. There was a, a reference from Chuck Schumer that he wants to essentially go with the Amy Coney Barrett timeline, which only took about a month after she was selected. That would indicate there's a lot of motivation to just get government funding done by that March 11th deadline. I, I actually heard from one member, uh, John Hoven, the top Republican on agricultural appropriations, who said he, he was surprised they didn't get more time. It seems like a decision to really keep the pressure on and then move on quickly to other things. But the, the idea is to move as fast as possible 
get all the legislating done during this recess week, basically, and then go to the House and Senate floor as fast as possible with the omnibus because they've got so much else to do. And can anything else really big happen in the rest of the year? Because in general, isn't August the kind of kickoff for the midterm election activity? And Congress is going to be concentrating on, I want to come back here, at least on the House, except for the 30 or 40 that are retiring. Right. They're, they're not going to want to uh, come back in August. You're right. Of course, there are 30 Democrats in the House retiring, so maybe there are a few people concerned with their own reelection. But yeah, when you head toward a midterm election, even for some of the weeks off in the spring, members value that time back in their district, whether it's fundraising or going to events. So this is going to be a tough year to have any other major legislative accomplishments for Democrats. They still are kind of talking about remnants of the Build Back Better proposals that maybe they could do a very limited bill. Uh, Senator Manchin seems to support the climate uh, and energy funding issues. Maybe they could tack on pre-K education and just do something limited. But again, there's not that much time left and they haven't been actively negotiating that lately. So, you know, we're looking forward to an omnibus, Supreme Court nominations, other nominations like the Fed, and then maybe if they can quickly sneak something through uh, in addition, that's that's nice for Democrats, but clearly it would not be a major series of negotiations that would be really expensive and, and, and time-consuming because there's just not much time. All right, so the steam is out of the sails. I guess I'm mixing my metaphors. Jack Fitzpatrick is Congress reporter for Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Here the Federal Drive On Demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she 
worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm 
fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. This episode is brought to you by Zell. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 